Recently, I've been reading a, a book about St. Patrick. St. Patrick is my patron saint, uh, the, the saint I chose as my confirmation saint in eighth grade. Um, but I'll be honest, when I chose him, I didn't really know anything about him except that he was the patron saint of Ireland. Um, and my family happens to be Irish, so I was like, that seems like a good saint to pick. Um, but I feel that in my life, he has sort of followed me in different times and um, reached out to me in certain ways. And I feel especially recently just a desire to know him more. And his life is pretty hidden from history because it was at a time where people weren't writing a lot of stuff down. He was on the edge of the Roman Empire. It was the 400s, um, so 1,600 years ago. In, he was born in Roman Britain. It was part of the Roman Empire at the time, although Rome was falling. The Western Empire was, was crumbling at that time in the early 400s when he would have been like a teenager, 20 years old. Um, and he was, captive, uh, he was captured as a slave by these pirates from Ireland when he was uh, 15 or 16 years old. And he was brought as a slave, and he lived there for six years on a farm as someone's slave. And heroically and courageously tried to escape, which would have been extremely dangerous. And he crossed 200 miles of uncivilized Ireland, um, which is very boggy and hard to walk across. And if he'd, gotten, if he'd been seen by anyone, he would have certainly been killed because everyone would have known he was a fugitive slave. What are you doing walking around by yourself? And he took the risk of, of asking these sailors once he finally got to a port on the coast of Ireland um, to see if he could stow away and, and maybe just work. He had no money, obviously, to work his way um, on the boat in order to get back to, to Britain. And even after that, they wandered. He, he did get there, but then him and his crew wandered for 28 days before they found a, a settlement um, and almost starved, except that God miraculously fed them by sending them a herd of pigs across their trail. Um, just an amazingly uh, adventurous life that he lived. And then after all of that, his, he, during his slavery, he would just talk to God because a lot of what he had to do was to watch the sheep, which was the lowest possible job you could have on the farm. Um, and it was often rainy and cold, and he would just sit out there and he'd pray. And it was during that time that he's, he reports in his confession, one of the few things that we actually have from Patrick, um, that he would say hundreds of prayers a day. And although when he was uh, a young man, he didn't uh, care about anyone but himself, and even himself he didn't care that much about, he, he started to become a man suffused with the Holy Spirit, and he wanted to love God, and he wanted to love his neighbor. And so when he finally got back to his parents in Britain, he wanted to be a priest. And he, he had a couple dreams that, that he experienced a call from the Irish people to go back to them to give them the gospel, um, which he did eventually. And during that time in Ireland, there were no towns. There were no cities. There were like little trading posts here and there. But imagine, it was all farms. No towns, no cities. Where would you go to announce the gospel? He had to go to all these settlements and, and places where people were farming. And they would gather every once in a while. Each clan had a king, which we sometimes call like a chief. It wasn't like the king of Ireland. There was no one king. There were dozens and dozens of kings over about hundreds or thousands of people. And he would have to make friends with those kings and, and, and propose the gospel in such a way that they would either be friendly to him ministering to the Christians already there or evangelizing those who weren't yet Christian or becoming Christians themselves and helping Patrick, who eventually, of course, became a bishop and the bishop of the entire island of Ireland. But in this book I'm reading... And this is the point of the story, that the kings at the time, 
These are pagan kings, not Christian kings, just purely pagan kings, very barbaric rituals and sacrifices and and beliefs about the kings. They had, in some ways, unlimited power. They had access to anything they wanted. They could travel, although other people couldn't. They could go across tribal lines and, and be accepted. But they also had these extreme obligations, these extreme duties, including the king could never um, sleep past sunrise. That was bad luck. Okay, imagine if you're the king. Yeah, I get to be in charge and everyone has to do what I say, but I never get to sleep in once in my life, or otherwise I'm not king anymore. Literally, you would just be deposed and they would elect a new king. Um, if you ever ran away in battle, you were not king anymore. You'd immediately be disgraced. You would be lower than a slave and they would make a new king. If you made unjust judgments, it was believed that you know, people would come to the king to, to judge their conflicts, if there were conflicts within the tribe. If you uh, judged in favor of someone unfairly, then it was believed that the cows would be infertile and they would stop giving milk and the crops would fail and you'd be a disgrace to your tribe and eventually you'd have to be deposed. So there was this pressure. It was like a lot of privilege being a king, but there was a lot of pressure too. And it just occurred to me that these, are, these were the people that, that Patrick evangelized that um, they were barbarians in many ways. They, didn't, they weren't civilized. It was the Iron Age. They had no towns. They had barely any technology. Their society was extremely primitive and based mostly on power. But they had this sense of justice already. They had this sense of duty, that there was a moral fabric to the universe, that you making a bad judgment, being unjust as a king, or ignoring someone poor who needs help, would result in failing crops and milkless cows. Like, it might, be, might have been magical thinking. It might have been really primitive thinking. But there was a sense that there was a moral sense to the universe. That our own goodness had to match with the goodness of nature that provides for our needs and gives us food and, and helps us to, to reproduce and carry on our societies. And it occurred to me also that this is... a a nice kind of answer to what we sometimes, maybe you've seen, heard this in college in some of your classes, the narrative that basically everything is about power. And that, you know, if you read, you can read the Bible through this lens, you can read history through this lens, you can read Harry Potter through these lens, that everything ultimately is about oppressors oppressing the oppressed. And it's all a power struggle, and nobody does anything for any noble reason. It's always at the bottom, some selfish reason, some way that you're exploiting people weaker than you. Um, and it's a very cynical view. And it's convincing. Why? Because we see it all the time. We see people being exploited. We see people benefiting from that exploitation and not being sorry and simply living their lives as if it doesn't matter. The world is full of this. The world is full of this oppression and violence and corruption. But the question is, what's really real? Just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. And even the pagan kings in Ireland that Patrick met, when he proposed this Jesus to them, why was it convincing? Why, why were their hearts even open to it? They were magical, uh, you know, primitive people who believed in druids who could curse you. And, and here is this gentle Patrick who comes over and risks his whole life leaves behind everything he's ever known, all his privilege as a Roman citizen, to come to these people to give them Jesus. And they say, yeah, no, that makes sense to me. 
And even today, you know, no matter how much we are fed this, this, uh, this narrative, that the, pe- the only reason people make up religions or people make up ideas like justice or goodness or love is simply to take advantage of you and nothing is really um, noble or, or beautiful or good. It's just a depressing lie. <laughs> and thank God we don't have to believe it. Because what's really real is that goodness, that beauty, that order, that love that is the fabric of the entire cosmos and is why you exist. Because, my friends, we didn't make up Jesus. Jesus made you up. He made me up. He created us. He is the most real reality there is. He is our rock, our refuge, our savior. And not only is he the most real and substantial because he, his existence is absolute, he is God, but he's also the light by which we see the rest of reality. When we know Jesus, when we live in him and he lives in us, we're able to see clearly what's really true, what's really real. And we don't mix up the corruption of the real, which is sin, the universe corrupted by our bad choices. We don't think that's what's real and these noble things, this beauty, this order, that's just a pipe dream or a fantasy. No, this is a corruption of what's really real. And no matter how profound that corruption might be, this reality is always more real. It's always, the light always beats darkness. You turn on a light in a room that's dark, the darkness doesn't fight back and the light's like, ooh, I wonder if I'm going to win. It just immediately dispels the darkness. And the same thing is true with Jesus. In the New Testament, St. John calls Jesus the Logos, which in Greek is kind of translated as, as the word. But it's a deeper word than that. We get our word logic from it. Logic, meaning it's like the order. It's like the sense. It's the reality. Jesus is the Logos that orders everything that is. And when we encounter him, we see that order, we see that beauty, and we want to be conformed to it. It's just our nature. And sure, we're wounded. Sure, we're selfish. Sure, we tend to not want to open ourselves to that because of what it might cost us. But if we allow him in and we, are, we surrender to it, we find that that's our joy, is to be like Jesus, is to be like God, because we are made in his image. And imagine that the Logos comes to us as our own food. This bread and this wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. The Logos himself, the most real reality there is. And that we receive him and we become real ourselves. Perhaps you've experienced this as you've surrendered more to Jesus to allow him to govern your life, that you become more real. You become more who you are made to be, not an image of what you think other people might think you should be or or who you hope you are, but who you actually are. And that's the gift. That's you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That Jesus is the light, but he allows us to participate in his light, to live in him and become light ourselves. And what a gift it is to be like Patrick, to be like the saints who didn't choose it themselves, but they found they were chosen. And when they gave themselves to it, they found they were able to do, despite their weaknesses and despite their ignorance, amazing things to transform countries, to transform societies, to transform hearts by what we, how we live and what we say. And so let's invite Jesus in today in this Eucharist as he comes to us every Sunday to become the light that we see, to become the logos, to order our lives according to his order.